So thank you very much for taking time to speak to us. And uh, can you please tell us a bit about uh, your background and uh, how you came to investigate, to research on uh, this uh, uh, issue about social protection in uh, humanitarian fragile contexts? Yes, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I'm a development economist by training. I always was fascinated as a student by the issue of development, how it happens both over time, how countries can grow richer and wealthier, um, but also across countries. Why are some countries poorer than other countries? And when I did my doctoral research um, at the University of Oxford, I wondered what problem should I apply my um, time to? And uh, I realized that the war in the Balkans were going on at the time and there, there was no voice in economics, no analysis in economics, understanding these conflicts from an economic perspective. And yet it was clear with all the killings, the displacements, the, the suffering um, and, and the hunger in that war and in many other conflicts that probably violent conflict is one of the biggest obstacles to human development. It's very difficult to, to grow and to prosper if people are after your life or if they take away your property and, and if you may have to flee. So and that's when I started working on conflict. And since then I have expanded my research a little bit to also look at contexts which are not so intensely violent, but where maybe violence is being threatened or where institutions have been damaged by past conflicts, where, where basically in situations which are vulnerable or fragile and uh, which are by now a lot more places than those which have an active ongoing war. Um, so I wonder what can you do to help people in these contexts? I mean, on the one hand, how do people work and live in these contexts, but also how can we support them? What is it that we can do to help them? And uh, of course, as um, we know social protection is a useful tool in other contexts, but can it work in this context too? So I, I think the jury's still out, but I think it's a fascinating research question, and I think it's also very relevant for policy and practice. Can you tell, tell us a bit more about what type of questions uh, you are focusing on in this moment? And, uh, um, what makes these studies, your research, unique? Let me maybe, the, yes, the so my, generally speaking, I, <coughs> yeah, generally speaking, I study what people do, their behavior, their livelihood, their coping strategies, you know, what produce do they grow on their farm, or what informal jobs do they have, or maybe why are they displaced, or maybe why are they doing migration, so their, their actions, but I also study their welfare, and um, are they poor or not, are the children malnourished or not, are they healthy or not, um, and so th I think the combination of these two is very interesting. Many economists only study behavior, but disregard the welfare, or vice versa. They're great poverty economists who don't really study the labor market behavior, for example, or the intra-household time allocation um, of the households that, or the individuals that they study. So I try to combine those two, and that's these topics I study in different fragile and conflict-affected um, contexts. What I think is quite unique about my research is that I really have an individual perspective um, on these settings and, and the circumstances of conflict and fragility. What does it mean to live and work in a conflict-affected area, if you like, as a victim of the conflict? I'm less interested in who becomes a perpetrator, because the majority of people are, are victims. So, you know, in, in Eastern DRC, um, in, I mean, there's so many examples, unfortunately, you know, where this is relevant, but um, there may be actors of violence, but there are many more victims of violence. And so if you are a 
small-scale farmer uh, practicing and then an armed group, whether it's government or rebels, comes into your village or, you know, you're here, it's approaching, what are you going to do to protect your family, to protect your livelihoods and, and your well-being? And there are many different strategies, and, and but often they're not documented and we don't know them. So many times I work um, with surveys and I try to quantitatively study what is happening here because I think it's good to have very rigorous evidence. It doesn't answer all research questions. Sometimes we need uh, other approaches and often I work in teams of different disciplines in mixed methods. But the, the value of the quantity or the quantitative evidence is that it often speaks very loudly, especially to donors. I mean, agencies like the World Bank um, and, and, and DFID and so on, if you come with numbers and if you come with you know, very rigorous quantitative evidence, it sometimes has a stronger impact. And if you say have a, have a great case study and in that place, it really is like that. Yeah? So that's the advantage. But then how do you translate the conflict setting into this quantitative research? And that's the core of my methodological research to measure conflict at the micro level and to put it in the surveys. And to so you ask people, so what happened? Were you affected by the violence? Has anybody in your family been killed? Um, you know, are you worried about conflict? Uh, do you dare go out at night? So we ask very conflict-sensitive and relevant questions and put it directly in the survey so we can then uh, understand how these things are interrelated. Not that many people do that type of research. So um, what is your specific experience in the collection of data in a humanitarian and fragile context? Do you see an inevitable trade-off between quality and urgency? How we can address this? Because sometimes the, the, the discussion is uh, uh, that in, in emergency context, you need to act and to, and to, to to save people and to help people, no? So, and social protection uh, systems have a more long-term uh, perspective that sometimes conflict with this urgency. How do you see that? Yes, there's also a perceived trade-off between conducting research and helping in an emergency. And I say perceived because I'm not sure it's true, especially in the long term, or if you think about it more structurally. A lot of data is being collected in all sorts of contexts, especially by agencies who intervene and help. There's M&E plans and you know, there's spending plans and there's data this and data that and everybody does a baseline survey and an endline survey. My worry is that while those data systems may be useful for some purposes and, and donors require a lot of evidence on these things and that often fulfills those needs, they don't necessarily help us to learn where there are knowledge gaps. And how best to help people in humanitarian emergencies and conflict and fragile affected settings is something we don't understand very well. That we need to help them is clear, but how we best help them, sort of the, what implementation mode works under which circumstances. And the circumstances are hugely different. I mean, we can't easily compare an earthquake in Mexico with Eastern DRC or with the war in Syria. These are three entirely different uh, contexts. So we, we have to try out different um, intervention modes in different contexts build a large knowledge base from many different settings and, and bring that together in order to start um, understanding what we should do when. So while maybe agencies and organizations have guidelines on what to do where, um, I think we're not, we cannot be sure that if it's a conflict and fragile setting, um, there's a best practice out there. And there's sort of commonly agreed standards which have empirically been proven to be um, very effective. And money is very limited, money is very tight, so I think it's actually also from an ethical point of view, very, very important that we put 
the right learning tools in, into our interventions. And that can be done if we prepare. So I think the, this idea of a trade-off is only apparent if you consider the short term. Oh, today something happened, tomorrow we need to act. I can't wait and design a research strategy. But we do know that things will happen. I mean, we know where there's an earthquake zone and we know when social tensions are overboiling, there may be violence. In any case, across an agency, you know, there will be interventions in conflict-affected areas at all times. Um, so we can prepare, we can design um, research designs, we can design data collection plans, we can design survey instruments which are appropriate to answer questions that haven't been answered yet. Of course, you shouldn't do research on questions that we know well, but there's so many knowledge gaps out there in this field. It's, it's such an intersection of topics. Uh, we're talking humanitarian, we're talking development, we're talking conflict. And so where all these three intersect, our knowledge is the weakest because it brings different disciplines and agencies and experiences together. And I think there the returns from learning or research um, are very, very high. And we need to prepare for that. And then it's practically possible, it's ethically feasible, and it's not that expensive either. And maybe we should cut down a little bit sort of very standardized data collection practices, which are not really that useful. I mean, there's tons of data out there we never really analyze profoundly, and there's very little data there which is suitable for decent analysis. Can you talk about pros and cons on different modalities of administering social protection in humanitarian settings? Uh, I don't know, cash transfers is one of the modalities, but uh, there are other kind of modalities. Uh, uh, use of technology, mobile banking versus physical distribution of cash and these kind of things. What do we know about the, how these program design components affect these uh, uh, impacts on the dimension of well-being? Do we have knowledge about that? Do we have enough evidence about that? We have some evidence, but it's not much if we compare it, for example, to the wealth of studies that we have on cash transfer programs, for example, in Latin America, Progresa and similar um, interventions, which have been so much studied. I mean, there are literally you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of studies of all these different components. And I'm sure there's still knowledge gaps in that field, so in an area where there's no conflict, in an area where there's no fragility. So of course, the challenge for social protection is much raised when, they, when especially in a fragile setting, I mean, a humanitarian emergency, if it's a natural disaster, say a natural disaster in Mexico, you know, needn't be such a big challenge from an intervention point of view if the institutions are strong. But in a fragile setting, the institutions are weak by definition. So how do you build strong social protection institutions in an otherwise very weak institutional environment? That almost seems like a contradiction. But if you start building the institutions first, then the social protection won't take place, so to speak. Yeah? So you know, what, how should you sequence this? And, and what's the impact of trying to build a social protection scheme in a fragile setting on fragility itself? But if you then have the objective of also reducing fragility, not just helping people, then maybe you're overloading your instrument and maybe the expectations rise, rise too much and maybe you should focus on doing one thing well. So I think this is, um, these are areas which we don't really understand well. There have been individual studies, but I mean, often it's literally single-digit number of studies on you know, um, cash versus in-kind, for example. And there are some review papers out there which survey the field and they basically conclude you know, the number of rigorous studies with control groups and you know, good study designs is, is very, very limited and it's far too early to make generalizable statements. So I think it's important to acknowledge that in many specific subfields, it's very early days. And uh, there are so many different ways of how you could deliver. It's not just cash versus in kind. You know, there's whether you should work with the government in a fragile setting or not, because maybe if you do work through the government, 
you know, we raise all sorts of issues. So is the Syrian government capable and willing to deliver social protection to Syrians living under its control? I think that's a very difficult ethical question to which there's probably no clear answer. But if you build up a parallel system, that's not what we usually want to do. Yeah? So you could, and, and in any case, um, if the government is actually strong but not committed to development, having a parallel system doesn't really work either. You know, if the government is extremely weak, you may need a parallel system, say, Central African Republic right after the violence. You know, maybe you just had to go in there and do something and then slowly transfer responsibility to rebuild state institutions. But the context are extremely varied and the number of modalities are very varied. So if you put that in a matrix, you know, the number of gaps are, are very, very large. And I think it will take, you know, 10 years at least, say, if not 20, before we can say, now we know how to do it. Much of the research that takes place uh, in these settings has a short time horizon. Uh, but there is an increasing recognition that we need to know more about long-term effects, uh, and particularly as beneficiary population may, may transition out of fragile to more development trajectories. Can you discuss a bit what uh, approaches have proven successful at contributing to these improved outcomes over the long term um, for children and household well-being, including livelihood resilience? Yeah. I think is there a role? Sorry, hmm? is there yeah. a role for research to help inform how to bridge the humanitarian development divide? And if so, what type of studies should we invest in? On? I think for learning, it is really important that we track people. So I think it's very important that we look at what happens to people, how they, how they respond and what the outcomes are at the individual or household level um, in terms of food security, livelihoods, poverty status, um, maybe even life satisfaction, I think is actually a really important indicator as well. Um, you know, what, what can we do to help make people lead meaningful and happy lives? Um, we will only really be able to answer that rigorously and, and well uh, and with confidence if we track the same individuals over time and preferably over the long term. So what happened to this child, you know, which was malnourished, aged one or two and maybe stunted, you know, what happened to that girl over time? You know, did she go to school? Did she grow up to have a meaningful job? Because that's really what development is about, that we that we enable people over their lifetime to lead meaningful and successful lives. So we need very long-term sort of perspectives in our research and our learning. And the fact that a given humanitarian intervention maybe helps address wash facilities in a sub-district of DRC for the next six months, well, that's probably worthwhile doing and maybe some kids benefit from that. But it's, it's a it's like a tiny mosaic stone and it's probably far too short term. So the funding might be like that, the implementation might be like that, but does it really help people in Eastern DRC gain better lives over, you know, over if you look at it over the long term, over the intergenerational perspective maybe even. And I think we need to zoom out a little bit in, in terms of the questions we're asking and then zoom in in terms of the research that we are conducting. And so I think, um, Longitudinal studies are incredibly helpful, whether they're birth cohort studies, whether they're household panel studies, or whether they are demographic and health surveillance studies. I think all these tools are useful for understanding what happens to people, and methodologically they control 
for a lot of things that are unobservable, so individual fixed effects. You know, we don't know what people's genetic makeup is or what their you know, personal characteristics are, their psychological you know, time-invariant effects. And so there's a lot of things we can't observe and, and which we'll never know. But by tracking the same person, I can see if interventions and a change in circumstances has made that particular person better off. And if we do that with many people, then we get much stronger evidence. And in northern countries, we have a lot of research tools like that. We have that research infrastructure. You could argue that in countries like in Europe, the needs, the knowledge needs are actually a lot lower because many more people live meaningful and healthy and secure lives. Whereas in the south, the global south, we have a lot more gaps and, and we have a lot less understanding. So it's ironic that much of the research spending is geared towards the north when in fact the challenges in the south are so much bigger. Is there a role for research to help inform how to bridge the humanitarian development divide? And if so, what type of studies should we invest in? I think when you're really concerned about lives and livelihoods at the individual level, you don't think of the divide between development and humanitarian. So whether it's an earthquake or whether it's a violent conflict or whether it's something in your family that has happened which threatens your livelihood, you don't think, I'm in need of humanitarian assistance or I think I need better development support. Yeah, you're just uh, you're struggling and you're, you're trying to find a, a way to survive and to maybe provide for your children and to make sure that the future is, is better. So I think this is a very um, unhelpful distinction. And even in the countries themselves, the, the in agencies and institutions are not organized like that. In fact, in, in our countries, they're often organized like that. We have health ministries and, and uh, education ministries in the north. We don't have you know, um, emergency ministries and long-term ministries. Yeah? So it, it is only in the allocation of the donor funding where we make this distinction. And it's, it's so outdated and everybody knows it. And, and it doesn't really uh, speak very favorably of our ability to reform an obvious um, shortcoming. So we need to be much more outcome-oriented and a lot less sort of input-oriented if we want to overcome that. And um, I think the role of research is, other than actually studying the delivery of these um, issues and studying aid and humanitarian assistance as an object in itself, I think the point of development research can be to, um, to demonstrate what works and what doesn't work. And I think we need to move more strongly towards evidence-based policy making and integrate the collection of the necessary data into the intervention so that we don't have a research dialogue going on on one side and a, a sort of a you know pr practitioners-led community on the other hand. And I think research and practitioner could quite helpfully come together more and, and, and try to embed, if I can use that term, their research into the um, interventions because in fragile and conflict-affected settings you can't just walk around and do research and knock on people's doors. You, you, know, you have to work with local authorities and, and, and maybe even traditional authorities or with, with NGOs or donors as a way of um, being safe and, and uh, respectful and it's, it's much more challenging to do this research but um, it's, it's feasible and we just need to think more carefully. It requires stronger capacity on all sides in order to do meaningful research but if we plan carefully and if we think about it carefully and um, there's a, a wealth of research and learning opportunities out there which could be captured. So you, you just said, uh, if I understand correctly what you said, that the, this uh, divide, humanitarian and development, is a bit artificial, you know, and so do you think that uh, uh, the, the, the topic that is going to be discussed 
in this two days conference, social protection uh, in a humanitarian and fragile context should be maybe rephrased in such a way that can convey this idea that we work in a vulnerable environment no matter if it's humanitarian or development or any other kind of uh, context. The most important thing is that there are vulnerable people in need and uh, we should find the best way for providing them what they need for a better life. Is, is, is that what you meant? So I, I think it is very important to bring these two communities together. I think um, on the intervention side, on the donor side, they can learn from each other for a start. Um, I think this conference shows that um, th this move is happening because social protection is traditionally a more development-oriented topic and fragile settings, emergency settings, is more humanitarian topic. So in a way, the title of the conference already shows this very slow moving towards the different communities, all with the objective of, of helping people and probably also of strengthening institutions. I think you need both. I mean, you can't just focus exclusively on the individuals. Individuals work in a context, in a social environment, in an institutional environment, and you know, if your government actively wants to kill you, then focusing just on the individual will not protect that person, neither socially nor physically. Um, so we need to think through the whole economy or the whole society um, in order to help the individuals, if you like. Yeah? They are interdependent. But um, I, I think it's taken a long time for all communities to recognize the importance of fragility in conflict. You see that so large international flagship publications, I don't know, the World Development Report and, and other reports like that, increasingly acknowledge the importance of insecurity, of violence, um, of institutional weaknesses. And so I think the, the practice community has sort of woken up to this and, and, and we see a, a gradual but slow move towards an integration of these approaches. But we, we're not there yet and it's, um, I think the analysis at the level of you know, how we should move forward is relatively clear, um, but it's the, the donor community is sort of a, a group of oil tankers, yeah? and they don't change direction easily. Yeah? So I wish they would turn the rudder around a little bit faster. How do we define success for a particular program in a fragile context in terms of improved outcomes at the the child, household, and community level. Uh, based on ability to measure impacts or monitoring program delivery, do we need to recalibrate our expectation and accountabilities around success? How do you think, how, how can we uh, define a program, a successful yeah. program? My instinct is to say that success is always success, and it's an absolute standard. So you know, reducing stunting, um, improving nutrition, um, pushing people above the poverty line. Um, you know, these are universal measures, which um, and you can take the whole set of um, development goals, and, you know, these are universal measures, and any move towards fulfilling them is a, is a good move. You know, sending kids to school um, is always good, yeah, no matter where you are. So that would be my sort of intuitive response. But then, of course, if you, def if you start being more specific and saying, so, you know, how much do we want to reduce stunting? Because we know we can't abolish it overnight. Or, you know, how much do we want to increase the number of girls that go to school relative to before we had an intervention, for example, yeah? 
um, then it becomes more difficult because obviously if you're in a conflict and fragile affected environment, um, it's much more challenging to achieve that. And, and you need to probably address more um, factors at the same time in order to achieve a given improvement. Say you want to reduce malnutrition by 10%, yeah? and then that's more challenging in a fragile environment than in, in a well-functioning, strong institutional environment where there was a negative exogenous shock and, um, and malnutrition went up temporarily and then you, you know, fix the shock and you move back to the previous level. Yeah? So, um, so I think if you have the odds against you, even small improvements uh, might be considered a great success. And of course, they will be much more expensive. So the cost-effectiveness of programs um, differs wildly. And then we have to make a moral judgment. You know, if we can rescue 10,000 children from malnutrition in country A, or 1,000 children from malnutrition in country B, for the given program cost, for the same program cost, where do we want to work? But if we follow that through in a very sort of technocratic sense, you know, we'll end up helping all the kids in the non-conflict affected countries first. That's probably not right either. Yeah? So um, it's the, the more you go into it, I think the harder it becomes to define success. But I think it's just important to acknowledge that if you're in a very tough environment, you might achieve less um, compared to an easier environment, but that might still be a very worthwhile um, help you. Surely we don't just want to go and solve the easy development programs. We, we want to solve the difficult ones. And then maybe the final thing I'd like to say is on that, we should bear in mind what are the spillover effects or the externalities of what we do. And I don't want to say that all programs have necessarily positive spillover effects. In fact, they could have negative. So you do a food aid program in a country and maybe gets captured by the elite and maybe certain areas benefit more than others. And maybe that um, increases rather than decreases ethnic tensions because the ethnic minority might observe this and see that all these international resources go to the ethnic majority areas. I'm just constructing a hypothetical example here. Um, so it's important to, to account for that. So you might go out and say, we've saved a lot of kids from malnutrition, but then the criticism could be yes, but they were all ethnic minority kids and the ethnic minority really resents that. And as a result, violence has gone up. So where does that leave you then? Yeah? So the, the operation in a conflict-affected or fragile country is much more complex and we have to really pay attention to especially unintended and especially negative externalities. Um, what actions by external partners can help or hinder positive development of effective social protection in this context? I think the most important contribution that international organizations can make in this field is by being aware of what we know and don't know and encouraging a culture of real systematic learning, especially inside the organizations where they have a, a mandate to achieve that. So by stressing in their own work with their employees, but also with their partners and stakeholders, you know, we're going in an environment here, we really want to help, we have the resources, we have an idea, we have a plan, we're talking to you about it, you know, we design it collaboratively. But we, we, want to, we want to do something, we want to try something. We think this is the best possible approach at this point in time, but we don't know for sure whether it's the best possible approach. And let's, while we do that, let's monitor this effort because we do similar things elsewhere and other organizations in this country do similar things. And therefore we want to make sure that we learn as we do it and we really share that 
those learnings in, in a broad way and in an open way, even if maybe there are some lessons which are uncomfortable. So, and I'm not just talking about m and &E on the one hand or research on the other hand. I think those are two components of the learning toolkit that we have. Um, but it, it's to do also with internal organizational culture. So what happens when something goes wrong? You know, and it's a cliche to say, you know, failure is an opportunity, but, um, you know, what are the consequences internally? You might have a lot of rotation of staff, you might have, you know, multiple responsibilities, and does it affect your budget or not? And so I think the internal culture of putting learning there, not just saying, oh, you know, I have to run this program, and now I have these researchers coming along, it's really quite a burden. I can't just go on and deliver the food aid or the whatever it is, you know, the training measure or the, you know, whatever your program is, the school building. So to, to say, no, that's great. And to, to emphasize the benefits of having that process, not just waiting for the report at the end or the, you know, the sort of the, oh, wow, you know, we've done well, good, you know, five years later, we know that. Um, and, and then furthermore, to embed that in the larger, so it's not just the individual study or the individual intervention that matters. It's the, you know, building up the evidence and it's producing public goods. I think that's the important thing. It's not just a, an evaluation report that goes into your own database where nobody can access it, but it, it should go out there and it's, you know, whether it's academically published or whether it's, you know, blogged about or, you know, but it, if it doesn't reach other stakeholders, it's not useful. And um, all too often we still have very siloed, very narrow, very closed, you know, sort of be it m &E or be it internal learning processes, which are not really appreciated and, and put into the, you know, target agreement of the staff and the evaluations of management and so on. So I think it's a um, cross the board, it's a sort of a cross-cutting theme um, for institutional culture and institutional learning. And some organizations may be further than others. I've never done a study comparing different organizations, but in my work on the ground, I just encounter different institutional cultures. And I think, I think there are differences. It could be even within an institution that there are differences between divisions or across country offices. But, but I think as a community, I often have the feeling that, you know, sort of M&E is something you have to do, the donor requests it, and, and learning is something that, you know, maybe an individual who used to be at university encourages that, but then that person moves and then the project stops again. Yeah, it's very ad hoc often, and it's, it's often not something that senior management requires and, and, and that the whole institution has embraced, unfortunately. Uh, what is the, ad the evidence about the role of cash transfers in a humanitarian, fragile, and protracted? crisis context. Do you have any, any experience about that? There is some emerging evidence on the effectiveness of cash transfer versus in-kind, for example. I think economists in particular like this research topic, you know, money versus <laughs> other modes of delivery. You know, it's, it, it appeals to economists, so perhaps that's why there is some research out there already. But the number of studies that are very well thought through and that are very solid and that are very reliable is very small. And in fact, the total number of studies is relatively small and there are a number of internal reviews and sort of, you know, own reports and evaluations which are not as rigorous, but which are helpful and which give some suggestions. So if somebody's interested in the field, reading these studies will provide initial evidence. But I think we're very far away from saying we have consolidated knowledge, you know, we have tested the same hypothesis in multiple settings and we can say that you know whenever the environment is like A it's, it's, it works and when it's like B it doesn't work and you know maybe it has to do with scale or maybe it has to do with the continent it works on or you know we're very far away from that so if you compare to 
other more mature fields of research, you know, say in education research or in public health or nutrition, I think it's a, it's a young field, it's a very young field and um, it's maybe even a bit early to, to try to survey the field yeah, because only so few studies are very rigorous. I think we need at least another 10 years in, in fields like that before we can have a, a meaningful number of studies which can be analyzed um, across the studies. Um, perhaps one last thing. The limitations that perhaps these categories actually give us when we talk about a fragile context. What does that actually mean? Uh, humanitarian and development and all these sort of boxes. We often talk about fragile and conflict-affected countries or situations as if they were like one uniform type of setting. Now we know that areas that are either conflict and or fragile affected are among the toughest nuts to crack in terms of human development. But they actually, those, that term actually masks a huge heterogeneity of, of context. I would say what they have in common is institutional weakness. Now, that's not always true in a conflict setting because you could have a country that goes to war and is very well mobilized and it's very strong internally. And there are numerous examples of that. Um, so especially if you have an international war between two countries or a civil war of a you know, very strong government at the central level against some rebels, maybe in some region far away from the capital. But those governments then rarely are very development oriented. So there's sort of two dimensions to that. You might have an authoritarian or a strong or powerful government, but if it isn't development oriented and if it doesn't have the welfare of its citizens at heart, it might still be a very weak environment from the point of view of the citizens, of the individuals. And so I, that's why I think it's so important to look at how people experience conflict in order to understand what the development role of conflict is. But we have to bear in mind that there are you know, strong states and weak states um, which can be at war or not. A purely fragile situation, you always have a weak state, so to speak. I mean, uh, for me, fragility is about the weakness of institutions that people experience. Um, it's about the inability to, um, for a state or a government to define and enforce property rights. Where by property rights, I don't just mean land title, but any form of property right, the right to my life. My government has to protect me so that I can live. And if the government fails to do that, then um, the property right that I have in my own body, in my own life is weakened. Yeah, if I can be shot with impunity, then I don't feel secure anymore for my own survival. Um, but it could be more informal issues. It could be uh, corruption, yeah, which is a weakness of institutions. It could be informal norms, and uh, not even legal norms, but informal norms that, that don't hold up or that are um, falling apart. Things are falling apart in many fragile settings. And so it could be the result of rapid transformation one way or another. It could be the result of displacement. If, I, if I'm displaced internally or externally, I, I live in a new environment where there are other rules. I don't know them, then I'm in a fragile environment. Even highly developed countries can often temporarily experience fragile settings, maybe after a natural disaster. So after um, Hurricane Katrina in the US, for example, um, cities affected by Katrina were fragile. Now with the recent hurricanes in the US, there was probably less fragility because there was more preparedness. So that's an example of how institutions can be strengthened. But, but just to bring home the idea that individuals experience um, fragility and weakness of institutions and even 
in a given location, different individuals can experience fragility differently. If you're a warlord in Eastern DRC, it's probably not particularly fragile because you're very secure. But if you are a small holder, man or woman, or from a different ethnic group, or don't own a gun, then it might be incredibly um, fragile and you might fear for your life at all times. And so we should move away probably from sort of country level, look at either conflict or fragility and, and consider the local setting and even maybe the individual perspective in order to better understand how conflict and fragility impact on human development.